text this morning is John chapter 4. And uh, as I was preparing, I never really gave much thought to it, but in the light of some recent things, I think it might be a timely word for us today. I'm not going to read the whole passage. John chapter 4, it's the encounter of Jesus with a woman in Sychar at a well. Uh, the story is some 42 verses, but let me just uh, kind of paraphrase the story a little bit. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus and the disciples were traveling from Jerusalem, which is in the south, up to the north to Galilee, where he did most of his ministry, Galilee, Capernaum, up in that region. And uh, he decided to go through Samaria to get to Galilee rather than going around Samaria, which, which uh, the Jews of his day always did. And so the Bible says they're traveling through, and on their way through, they're about 30 miles now from Jerusalem. They land in Shechem or Sychar in that region at Jacob's well, and Jesus has a seat, and he tells the disciples to go on into, into town, all 12, get some food for us, and, uh, oh, you didn't take the offering? Is that why you're holding the plates? <laughs> I can see well enough for that. There you go. Okay, well, God bless you. Come on forward, gentlemen, if you like, and just receive the offering. I'm going to tell you a story while we're receiving the offering. How's that? So, um, that's right, if it's a good story, you can put in more. Um, so as, as Jesus uh, sends the disciples away, he's sitting there at the well, and by and by a woman comes uh, from Sychar, it's the middle of the day, she comes to draw water. And she draws the water, and the Bible says that Jesus speaks to her, and he asks her for a drink of the water she has drawn. And she's absolutely amazed, she's shocked, she basically says, why are you a Jew? Now, are you listening to me, or you just watch the money plate? Are you all listening? Okay. Y'all want to see what your neighbor put in. Doesn't matter. Okay, that's between them and the Lord, okay? In fact, let me get you off the hook. If you didn't put anything in, it's because they already did it at the ATM out in the foyer, okay? So you don't have to feel judged. Um, but in all seriousness, back to our story. So this woman comes, and she's drawing water, and Jesus asked her for a drink because he didn't have anything with him to draw water. And she is shocked that this, number one, a Jew would speak to her, and number two, that uh, him being a man would also speak to her and so uh, she basically uh, just says, why, why are, you, are you speaking to me? And Jesus said to her, he said, if you knew that the gift, the gift that God has for you, and if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you would actually be the one asking me for living water. And so uh, she's kind of feeling uncomfortable, this guy talking to her. And so Jesus uh, says to her, he says, go and get your husband. Now he knows that she hasn't been married. Uh, that she's not married, rather, and she tells him as much. She says, I'm not married. He says, you're right, you're not married. In fact, you've been married five times, and the man that you're living with right now actually isn't your husband. Well, that seemed to be a good time to change the subject, and so she says, well, you're obviously a teacher, a Jew, maybe you're a rabbi. i got a question for you. She said, your people worship God in Jerusalem at the temple. Uh, our people worship God in Mount Gerizim at the Samaritan temple. Uh, which one is the right temple? And Jesus basically says to her, listen, lady, the issue is not where you worship. It's not about a place. He said, the hour is coming, and even now the hour has come when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he says, the Father is looking for people to worship him that way. And the lady said, well, I guess one day we all know the Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. He'll kind of get all this stuff straightened out. And Jesus said to her, I am the Messiah. Now, she's so excited by this confrontation, this, this conversation, rather, she's had with Jesus, and the light goes on, she realizes he really is, 
that she just runs back to her village and she tells everybody about this encounter she's had with this rabbi, with this, with this prophet. And while she's gone, the disciples, who, by the way, very likely passed her on the road, whether they, when they went in for lunch or when they were coming back, they probably passed her twice. Uh, they get there, and they, get, they want to know if Jesus wants something to eat. He basically says, I'm not hungry. I've already eaten. They say, what do you mean? Did anybody bring you food? They didn't know what was going on. And Jesus said, you don't understand. My nourishment is not just in a sandwich or whatever you can bring from town. My nourishment, my fulfillment is in doing the will of God. In other words, guys, while you're in there satisfying your stomachs, I just had a feast out here. I mean, I'm not even hungry. Just what, what God just did to this divine appointment uh, is so exciting. I didn't even thought of food. He said, my food is to do the will of God and to uh, finish his work. And then, uh, by this time, the woman has been in town. She's been speaking to people. This whole crowd, the whole village comes out. They're about half a mile away. They come out to meet Jesus. And so Jesus is talking to the disciples, and all these people are coming out. They're all dressed in their white. It's the middle of the day. It's hot. They would have had the, the cotton kind of clothes on, the light clothes. And Jesus says to the disciples, listen, guys, don't say it's still four months to the harvest. In other words, don't say that this thing God is going to do or God use, whatever the case may be, is someday in the future. I'm telling you, if you'll just lift up your eyes, you'll see the harvest is already ripe. People are already ready, hungry to come to God. And, uh, and, of course, the people are coming, and Jesus goes back into their community with the woman. He stays there a couple of days, and many, almost the whole village, it seems, comes to Christ. Many because of what Jesus taught them, but also many of them because of the difference they saw in that woman's life. Now, to fully appreciate what was taking place in this conversation, and, and just, just Jesus going through Samaria to Galilee rather than going around, we have to have a bit of history. Most of us are familiar with, kings, with the, with the kings uh, in the early history of Israel. We had the first King Saul, we had King David, we had King Solomon. By the time King Solomon came, the kingdom was, was so powerful, was so wealthy, and of course it deteriorated toward the latter part of his reign to a point that when he died at around 931 B.C. and his sons took over, he, he appointed one son, but they ended up having two, the kingdom divided. And what happened was the Israel was now divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, they were still brothers kind of thing, Jewish. They were kind of still, you know, they, they would interrelate and they, were, they would still have fellowship, you might say. But they were two separate kingdoms. There were, two, there were ten tribes in the north and in the south there was just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Now, around 722 B.C., uh, the Assyrian Empire, which was to the east, uh, they invaded, which would be like uh, Iran, they invaded uh, the northern kingdom, and they took about 75% of the people out of that region and back into captivity into their own lands, into their own regions. They left about 25% of the Jews there in the northern kingdom. But what they also did was they took thousands of other peoples that they had conquered in other regions, and they resettled them into the north. And in doing that, they intermarried and mingled with the Hebrews and became this mixed breed, this mixed population, which was kind of the Assyrians' intention so that this nation would never kind of be unified and be a threat again to the Assyrians. And so that's what happened. And because that happened, the Jews who lived in the south, they began to despise the Jews who lived in the north, at least those who were left, because they had intermingled with pagan peoples and adopted their pagan gods and so on. And so they would kind of not have a whole lot to do with them. Well, 586 B.C., about 150 years or so later, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah itself was invaded by the Babylonians. 
Uh, you may remember the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, that all happened then. And so the Babylonians, they came against uh, the people in the southern kingdom, and they carried them back to Babylon in captivity as well. So now you had both these kingdoms that were divided. They were both conquered by other peoples. Well, about another 150 years, 136 years or so later, if you remember the story, the kingdom of Babylon itself was conquered by Cyrus of the Persians, modern-day Iraq. And when they, conquered, uh, when they conquered Babylon, eventually over time, they allowed some of the Jews who were originally from the south, they allowed those Jews to come back, a number of them to come back to the area of Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and eventually under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so they, they started to come back. Well, when the people who were in the south were rebuilding the temple, the ones in the north, those who were Jews, they were mixed, but they still had Jewish sensitivities. Uh, they wanted to come down and help the Jews in the south build the temple. Well, the Jews in the south would have none of that because they considered themselves pure Jew Jews. They didn't want anything to do with these mixed Jews, these kind of pagan Jews to the north, so they rejected their help and said, no, you're not going to help us at all, go away. And so that's what they did. They left Jerusalem, they went back up to the north part uh, in, in Samaria, in the area of Shechem, and around Mount Gerizim, and they built their own temple. So now what you had is you had pure Jews, if you can say that, in the south, with a temple in Jerusalem. You had these mixed Jews to the north in Samaria, in Shechem, Mount Gerizim, where they built their own temple. They also instituted their own priesthood. So they kind of had their own religious structure there that was like Judaism, but also would have been mixed with some of the idolatry and pagan practices of the peoples they mixed with. So it wouldn't have been really that pure. But they had their own thing going on there up in the north at that time. Well, there was a lot of animosity between those two peoples. In fact, in 129 B.C., um, the, um, uh, uh, some armies from the south actually went up to Mount Gerizim and they burned the temple. Uh, and then in, 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 uh, in revenge, you might say, out of that, some Samaritans from the north, they came down to the temple in Jerusalem and they put a dead pig on the altar to, uh, to desecrate the altar. So, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, there's a whole lot of animosity between the northern and the southern, between the Jews in, in Jerusalem and that surrounding area in, in Judah, and any so-called Jews, but basically Samaritans they were called in that region to the north of them. Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be actually less than Gentiles, and that's pretty low. You know, think of the worst kind of people group, whatever, in our culture today, where they would be kind of thought of as less than that. But here's the key. By the time Jesus came on the scene, nobody who was really a good Jew, rabbi, teacher, whatever, would ever care about the Samaritans. Nobody ever tried to evangelize or proselytize or win Samaritans to Judaism, if we can kind of understand how they thought. Samaritans were a lost cause. They were written off. Not only were they lost, nobody had an, even an interest to turn them to God. That's basically uh, where they stood in Jesus' day. Now, when we get back to this gospel account of Jesus' ministry, what we realize, a lot of Jesus' ministry actually took place in the northern region, a lot of in the areas of Galilee, Capernaum, a lot of miracles, those, uh, those areas. And so Jesus is going to be traveling with his disciples up to uh, Galilee. And I'm sure the disciples assumed 
that they were going to be going the way that all good Jews travel. And the way that you traveled from south to north or north to south was you always went around Samaria. You either traveled around the Mediterranean uh, area or else you would go up, if you're going from Jerusalem, you would go up to the area of Samaria, its border, and then take a right and go along the Jordan River until you pass Samaria sufficiently enough to turn back inland and then go on your journey upward. Now, if you take this route, it's about 70 miles. It's about four or five good days of travel. Jesus says, no, we need to go through Samaria. And, and it, it, was a shorter, it was a shorter trip. You're only talking about 40 miles or so, 30 miles to, to Shechem, to Sychar there. Another 10, 12 miles, whatever, you get back on the path outside of the, outside of the boundaries. Probably a two or three day trip, depending, of course, on how fast you walk. Jesus said to the disciples, I need, another translation says, I must needs go through Samaria. Uh, Jesus was found prompted by the Holy Spirit to go in that direction. Now, in that day, to take that kind of shortcut, to move through that region, Jesus was breaking a lot of religious taboos. So what Jesus does, is he travels with the disciples, he gets to the well, Jacob's well in Sychar, and the Bible says he sends the 12 disciples into town to get food. I think there's probably a couple reasons why Jesus does that, why he sends all 12 disciples to get lunch. In fact, it kind of sounds like a bad joke, doesn't it? How many disciples does it take to buy lunch? Well, he sends all 12, and I think he does it for two reasons. Number one, I think Jesus does it for his own sanity. Just needs a break, just needs some time alone, just needs a rest, and so, okay, well, guys, why don't you go take care of the food? But I think more importantly, Jesus knew what was going to be taking place. Jesus knew that the Father was going to be sending somebody his way, and he knew that he was going to be talking to her about some very sensitive things. And I really believe that the Lord's heart was not to embarrass her, but to have this intimate conversation with her about things that you would never bridge in a conversation in that day. Uh, but he wanted to arrange it so that they could be alone. Now, we read in the Scripture that when the woman arrives at the well, I can kind of imagine she comes to the well, and she just kind of takes a glance at Jesus. Like, he's already sitting there. She comes, she kind of takes a glance, notices he's there, takes her water pot, kind of brings it closer to her, because she knows more on her side that he's not supposed to have anything to do with her. She can see by the way he's dressed that he's a Jew and he's a man, and so she doesn't expect any kind of conversation at all. She takes her water pot, she lowers it down in the well. The Jacob's well was sitting about 100 feet deep. And so you'd have a water pot or some kind of leather container, whatever, and you'd have your rope wrapped around it. You'd travel with that. And when you got to the well, you could undo the rope and let it down. So she goes through the motions, she brings up the water, and it's at that point that Jesus opens his mouth and absolutely shocks her. He talks to her, number one, but he says, can I have a drink of water? And she notices, obviously, that he has nothing to draw water with, so it seems like a logical question. You're in the desert, it's the middle of the day, he's bound to be thirsty, but she's absolutely shocked that he would talk to her. Why? For two reasons. Number one, she's a Samaritan. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. You don't talk to people like us. It's, it's taboo. But also, he's a man talking to a woman. And she can maybe tell by the way he's dressed or, you know, that, that he's, you know, maybe a rabbi, a teacher, whatever. But she's absolutely amazed that he would talk to her. Because, you see, back in that day, any self-respecting Jew, especially a rabbi, someone in authority, uh, it is said they wouldn't talk to a woman in public. Most of them would, not even their own wife. 
Uh, because when a rabbi woke up in the morning, tradition says he thanked God for three things every day. Number one, he thanked God he was born a Jew. Number two, he thanked God he was born free. And number three, he thanked God he wasn't born a woman. Don't kill the messenger. So she's absolutely shocked that Jesus would actually speak to her. Um, what's more, uh, it was unheard of for Jews to use uh, the same well as a Samaritan, absolutely unheard of for a Jew to share the same water pot or the same uh, cup or whatever as a Samaritan. And so all these things must have been going on in her mind when Jesus breached that conversation. Now, we don't know a lot about this woman. What we do know is a little bit about her, her status. We know that she's in a relationship uh, back in the days before Facebook. Uh, she's in a relationship. We've come to find that out. Uh, but we also know that that relationship is not a wholesome one because she's drawing water in the middle of the afternoon, which is really bizarre. If you live in the desert, you draw water early morning, late at night. You don't draw water in the middle of the afternoon because it is just scorching heat. And so Jesus knows by the fact that she is there that she's someone who has probably been ostracized in her community. Uh, she's someone who just doesn't want to be at the well, whether it's in Sychar, even the, uh, Jacob's well. She doesn't want to be there when other people are there, when other women are there. She doesn't want to, she's so sick and tired of the gossip and the giggles and the raised eyebrows and, and all the stuff she has to put up with all the time with people around her because people in that region and in her community, they know her very well. And so she basically comes at a time when she's hoping nobody would be there. And so for this woman to have a conversation or for Jesus to break the ice and begin a conversation with her was to break all the rules. Absolutely broke all the taboos of his day. And you know, for us here this morning, we could read this story and we could think right on Jesus. You're my hero. Wow, Jesus, that's why I love you. You're just awesome. You just kind of broke all the rules. Friends, can I say, I really hope that we will be a church that will break rules the right rules. A church, a people who love God, who love the Word of God, but who will break the right rules. That's what Jesus did. In fact, I can't help but wonder sometimes if we ever really stop to consider what kind of rules would Jesus break if he lived in our day? What kind of taboos would Jesus reveal or break if he lived in Moncton today in 2016? Now, 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 Please don't misquote me on this. It's going to be on, online anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter. We're not going to edit this part. And my, my wife's getting real nervous, but it's, not, it's no big revelation. But I wonder if Jesus was here in Moncton today, if he lived in Moncton today, if he was doing his ministry in Moncton today, would Jesus ever go into a bar? Would Jesus ever go into a liquor store to talk to somebody, to build a relationship? Would Jesus ever associate himself with a prostitute? Would Jesus ever be seen hanging around somebody who was uh, a drug addict, uh, somebody who was a bum on the street? Would Jesus actually do that? And you know, for most of us, we kind of easily acknowledge, well, yeah, he probably would. Yeah, I, I, Jesus would do that. The Bible says he was a friend of sinners. I got a question for you this morning. Uh, this week in the city of Moncton, it's, there's a festival on called the River of Pride. Anybody know what that is? It's Gay Pride Week. Uh, our sidewalks, our, our walkways downtown, our, our, what do you call those walkways, I guess? What do you call those? Crosswalks, thank you. Uh, they're painted in the colors of the rainbows. There's signs up. I haven't seen all the stuff that's downtown yet. 
but it's called the River of Pride, and there's actually uh, events on all week long. I printed off the calendar actually this morning to take a look at some of the things that were going on. And, and in light of what I'm sharing this morning, I had to ask myself, what would Jesus do this week? And I want you to think about that. I'm not saying that Jesus would endorse a lifestyle. I'm not saying that Jesus would be down there partying and laughing. But would Jesus be here? Would Jesus stay home all week? I, I just kind of think somehow Jesus would be in the very middle of all those festivities. Am I wrong? You're really uncomfortable. Yeah, see, because see, it's easy to read about a Samaritan woman, isn't it? It's easy to read about these people that Jesus loved, that Jesus was a friend of sinners, but we don't take time to stop and think, well, who are the sinners? We don't take time to think of the social taboos that existed when Jesus actually called a man who was a tax collector who was hated by the Jews to be one of his disciples. We don't think about that. Uh, we, don't, we don't think about the people that Jesus really associated. We don't really think of the taboo of the woman that washed his feet with her hair and, and, and why the religious leaders uh, you know, were so offended by that. We don't have an inkling of what it really meant for Jesus to sit there and to, number one, travel through Samaria on the way to Galilee rather than going around. But even worse than that, to stop at a well and talk to a woman, that's bad enough. But to talk to a Samaritan woman, that's even worse. But to talk to a Samaritan woman who's been married five times and is now living with a man. We don't grasp how, how awful that was in Jesus' day. And I have to ask myself, if Jesus were here in Moncton today, would Jesus be upset with, disgusted with, not associate himself with those who are broken, those who are bound in sin, those who don't know their way? Or would Jesus be right in the middle looking for opportunities to have conversation, looking for opportunities, those divine appointments? I'm not saying Jesus would be endorsing the event or Jesus would be laughing and, and, and partying the festivities, but I, I really have to believe that in the very middle of an event that is called River of Pride, that God would send the River of Life. I, I just got to believe that. I just, I just believe from this story. In fact, I would say that this event doesn't even compare uh, in, in, in the, the tabooism, if there's such a word, to some of the things that Jesus actually did in this day. It was very close, if not, if not even worse, some of the things that Jesus did. It just a thought that crossed my mind. I'll be offered my resignation tomorrow. <laughs> you see, Jesus was speaking to a woman who was rejected by the very people who themselves were rejected. That's pretty low. You have an entire group of people, the Samaritans, who were rejected by the Jews, and she was actually rejected by the ones who themselves were rejected. And Jesus said this to her. He said, if you only knew who was speaking to you and the gift God has for you, you would ask me for water. But she looks at him and she wonders what he's talking about. At this point, she doesn't quite get what he's talking about because she sees that he has nothing to draw water with. So how are you going to give me living water or water? You have nothing to get water with. I'm the one that had to give water to you. She didn't, can't quite get her mind around it. But it really shows she doesn't understand what Jesus is offering. She actually thought that Jesus is offering kind of like a lesser gift. And I don't want us to miss this. You know, see, sometimes we... Let's say, for example, we invite somebody to the church. Oftentimes, when you invite somebody to the church, they're actually thinking about a lesser gift than you're really offering. They're thinking about you offering them a church service. They're thinking about coming to a place where, you know, you're going to hear about more rules 
or a place where you're going to maybe hear some little insights from the pastor about how to live a better life. They're kind of expecting that kind of thing. But that's not what church is about. Jesus said this, if you only knew who was speaking to you, you would be asking me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not just offering you some advice on life. I'm not offering you some insights on living. I'm actually, what I'm offering you is a relationship with God. That's really what this is all about. I want you to know that you can actually know God. In fact, Jesus said, if you only knew the gift God has for you, you'd be asking me for that. Because you see, this water you drink right now is going to leave you thirsty again, but I have water for you that is not only going to satisfy the real thirst in your spirit, but it's actually going to bubble up in you. And as we actually see at the end of the story, Jesus says that water is going to become eternal life to you. It's going to bubble up in you. In fact, you're going to become a vessel to share that water with other people. I really believe there's a message here for those of us who know the Lord. My question to you is this 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 morning, if you're a Christian. How often do you drink fresh water? How often do you depend upon yesterday's drink, whatever it may be. Maybe it was an answered prayer that made you feel great, encouraged your faith. Maybe it was the good feeling you had because you shared uh, Christ with somebody, maybe yesterday or last week, whenever it was. I'm, I'm not sure exactly maybe what you did. I'm not saying it wasn't real. I'm sure you felt the Lord's presence when it happened. But that was yesterday's drink. Do you hear me this morning? That was yesterday's encounter with the Lord. I think the Lord wants us to understand as believers you need more than just a one-time drink. If you really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need a continual resource, a continual drinking in opportunity of what Jesus exactly is offering us uh, if we follow him. Now, once again, she doesn't understand exactly what the Lord is saying at this point, but her response to the Lord is simply this. She basically says by her actions, I'm all in. I want this. May not understand everything you're saying, but but what I do understand, I want this. And I think one of the things that this woman really did understand is she understood that she's tired of life as it is. She doesn't understand all the theology, all the intricacies of what Jesus is sharing with her, but I think what she does understand is she's tired of the isolation, she's tired of the ridicule, she's tired of a life that's going nowhere, she's tired of looking after and feeding and cooking for and drawing water for a man that doesn't love her enough to make her his wife. She's tired of all that stuff. And she recognizes that Jesus is offering her something that her heart longs for. And she's saying, I want that. And maybe you can understand that this morning. You've been living life on your own terms for a long time. And you're just tired of the way things are turning out. And if Jesus is actually offering you something different, if he's actually offering you himself, if he's offering you the very thing that satisfies the deepest longing of your heart, maybe you're here this morning honest honest enough to say, I want that. I'm not really big on churches. I've come to know church. I'm not, I'm not big on religion. I've tried that. Maybe I was raised in some religion. I'm still, I'm still kind of empty. But if I really can get Jesus, if I really can get life, if I can get something that's real and it's bubbling up inside of me and gives me strength and joy and, and answers life's questions, gives me a, a power to be a different kind of person like God's made me to be, then I want that. And then Jesus does something interesting. He takes a hand grenade and he throws it in the middle of the conversation. He tells the woman, go get your husband. Now, I want us to understand when Jesus says that, I don't believe for a moment he's trying to embarrass her. I don't think he's trying to make her feel awkward at all. 
I think what Jesus is doing in this conversation, because she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you've answered right, you don't have a husband. You've actually been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. In fact, in the Greek language, the word sue, S-U, your, is actually quite an emphatic term, which does imply that what Jesus is saying is that the man you're living with now, he's not your husband. He's somebody else's husband. You're in a relationship you shouldn't be in. You see, back in that day, you could remarry if your husband died. The problem was you couldn't kill him. You know, he, he had to die of some natural cause, and you were, you were free to remarry. In fact, the Samaritans were a bit more slack. You could marry more times than the Jews would allow. But uh, that was kind of uh, the, the, the situation she was living in. But I really believe in revealing her real situation, Jesus is not trying to embarrass her. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to help her understand that you're in the presence of a godly person, an oracle of God, who is speaking to you on God's behalf, and God is speaking to you. He's revealing your life to you because he wants you to understand he knows your problems, but because he can read your mail, he's also powerful enough to solve your problems. That's really what he wants this woman to understand. He's not trying to push her away. He's trying to help her to understand God knows you, he knows your address, and he loves you, and he wants to change your life. Well, that whole revelation about uh, her being with a, a man and so on kind of makes her feel uncomfortable. So it seems like she's changing the topic and she says this, where are we supposed to worship? In Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim? And, uh, and once again, she seems to be changing the subject, but I don't think she is at this point in the conversation. Because we're kind of getting the condensed version of the conversation, aren't we? We're, we're getting the high points. We're getting the important stuff. But they, there are probably some other, th you know, they, they talked over a bit of time. And she's, she's, you know, hearing these things and her heart's warming. Something's happening in her heart. And, and when she basically says, well, where do we worship God? In Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim? I don't think she's trying to change the subject. I think basically what she's saying to Jesus, well, if what you're saying is true, then where do I go to get my life fixed? Like, where's the real temple? Where is God then really? You know, you're speaking like somebody I've never heard, and obviously you're based in Jerusalem, so is that the right place to go? I was raised to believe that we're okay in Mount Gerizim, in the Samaritan Temple. Like, I want to know God. You know what you're saying about I want that, but where do I go? And I don't think it's a whole lot different from people that you work with and rub shoulders with every single day who really do have an emptiness in their heart. They know they need more. They might even have a sense of there must be a God, but they ask the question, where do I go? Do I go to the Pentecostal church, the Baptist, the Presbyterian, the Catholic? No, where do I go? Because to them it kind of all looks the same and they have no idea. They, they, just, they just need some, they need some clarification on that. I want you to notice in Jesus' conversation with this woman, and this is very important, Jesus does not condemn her. He does not tell her what a terrible sinner she is. And you know why? He doesn't need to. I'm not saying you can't, you know, explain if something is wrong. I'm not talking about that. But Jesus doesn't dump on her because like I shared last week, she's dumping on herself enough. And in fact, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to the message online. But let me just give you a, a quick synopsis when it comes to this. That God has done such a work in your heart and mind that we don't need to live in condemnation and shame. But if we truly understand what we've been set free from, Neither will, we use, neither will we allow ourselves to be used by the devil to be instruments of condemnation and shame of other people. 
We don't realize this sometimes. We think because we're Christians and we think we have all the answers and we have the insight that we have the right to dump on people. I don't mean just non-Christians. I mean Christian people who aren't living up to our standards, who aren't good enough, who aren't doing a good job, whatever the case may be. We come to them and we, we just kind of dump on them. We talk about them behind their back and we don't realize that we are being used by a demonic spirit that Revelation calls the accuser of the brethren. And we're allowing ourselves to be used by the powers of darkness to condemn somebody, to put somebody down, to criticize somebody when we are called to be ministers of reconciliation to bring people to God. And if we find somebody that's not you know, who we think they should be and they're not good enough or doing their job well enough, whatever the case may be, it's not our place to condemn. It is our place to come and be used by God to lift up and to encourage and to bless and to pray for. I remember reading a story uh, about a revival that broke up back in the northeastern states. But when the pastor first started, he was just a young guy, didn't know a whole lot, just kind of starting the ministry. And he stepped into the pulpit of some great preachers down through the years. After his first Sunday of preaching, the elders came to him and they said, Pastor, you're not a very good preacher. But here's the difference. But we're going to pray for you. And we believe in you. Isn't that difference? We're going to pray for you. Not manipulating prayers. Oh, God, change the pagan, whatever. No, we're going, to pray. we're going to bless you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to believe God for you. That's what love does. Love believes all things. Love trusts all things. Love trusts God to be able to do more. And we're going to pray for you. And that man became a great preacher, and, and revival eventually broke out under his ministry because People came and didn't tear him down. They actually built him up. They weren't used by the devil. They were used by the Holy Spirit to encourage and to bless. Anyways, you can listen to yourself next week or online. You may not want to know that you've heard it. So she basically says, where do I go? And Jesus says something very important to her, and don't miss this. He basically says, ma'am, it's not about a place. God wants you to know him. And he wants you to know him in spirit and in truth. You know, for those of us who've been raised in the church, we've been told, and it's not a bad thing to be told, but we've been told that this is the house of God. You don't run in the house of God, right? You run at home, you can break lamps at home, but you don't run in God's house. Parents, can I tell you something? Let your kids run in God's house. It's okay. Don't come on the platform, don't trip over wires, don't knock over instruments. I'm not talking about that. But you can have fun in church. You know, you've been in a kid's program or sitting on your bottom for 45 minutes or an hour yourselves as well. If you weren't so proud, you'd do it yourself. It's okay to sprint down the aisle. It's okay to run around and laugh and have some fun in this place. But you see, what we've come to do is we've come to talk about, like, this is God's house. This is, you know, God's house is a place. And so what we do, even unknowingly sometimes, is we come to God's house and we, we dress differently, we talk differently than we do when we're outside of God's house. And somehow we think that when we come here, we, we act differently and do things differently because, well, God's here, and he is. But the reverse of that is that it doesn't mean that God's not out there. You see, so God is here because he promised to meet us when we come together, but when we leave this place, it's just a place. It's just a building. And even when we come to this place, it's just a building. What worship has to do with is understanding that God's not limited to what he does in my life here. I understand that when I go home this afternoon, when I go to work tomorrow, 
God's actually with me. That's where he is. If my life is a life of worship, I realize it's not limited to a place. God's with me where I go. And by the way, you probably didn't realize this, but even when you're at the job and you're around the water cooler and you're in some of those conversations, he's actually the third person in the conversation. He's actually right there. You know what I'm saying? You can't kind of, you know, put him in his place out there. God, I'll meet you on Sunday. I'm busy right now. I'm living my life, whatever the case may be. I'll, I'll see you on Sunday. Anyway, that's just free. I don't think I had that written down, but he goes where you go. And I wonder if we really understand that because worship is not a place. Worship is the way you live your life. In fact, the word worship in the New Testament is kind of interesting. It's made up of, of two words, pro, which means toward in the Greek language, pro, and uh, skenio, which means to kiss. So pro, toward, and skenio, to kiss. Worship literally means to kiss toward, to lean toward, to kiss. I've done a whole lot of weddings in 30 years, and, and one of my favorite parts is that toward the end of the wedding, when I asked the couple, uh, do you promise to forsake all and to commit yourself only to one another? And then I hold my breath. And if they say yes, then I get to pronounce them husband and wife. And then this is the best part of all. I get to look at both of them who up to this point have been looking at me. I get to look at them and say, you may now, what? Kiss the bride. Or kiss your wife. In fact, probably a lot of you don't, don't even realize this, but I never even kissed my wife to my wedding day. She wasn't my wife until our wedding day, that's why. <laughs> Just had to wake you up. But I, I say you may kiss each other. And what do they do? At that moment, they stop looking at me. They turn away. They lean into one another, and they kiss. That's a wonderful image, I think, of worship. You see, what worship is really all about is not limited to Sunday. It's every single day. What worship is really about is the God of the universe taking the first step, and he's leaning into you, not just on Sunday. Any time through the week where you feel the Holy Spirit saying, hey, would you, would you just worship me where you are right now? Would, would you just come away to a quiet place right now and, and just get alone with me? You need to spend some time. You need to get refocused. Whatever it may be through the course of the week, would you mind doing that? I remember one speaker a number of years ago, it just came to my mind, but he was talking with the fact that he, he, um, he was being just wrongly treated by some brethren. He took a lot of flack, but he didn't retaliate. He didn't, he didn't you know, argue back. He didn't you know, defend himself and so on. He just really acted honorably in that situation. He just honored the Lord. He was very gracious. He apologized for any offense and so on. And he said, when the conversation was over and the people walked away with literally a pound of flesh, he said for me, they just went up one side and down the other. They walked away from me. And I felt in my, in my heart, I just felt, in my flesh rather, I just felt, oh, I want to say something. I, you know, I should have said this. I should have said that, whatever the case would be. But his spirit, he just, he really brought everything else under submission to his spirit and said, Lord, I want to honor you in this. I want to be like Christ. And he said it was almost tangible. He said, when the people walked away, I took a breath, and it was like I could feel the Holy Spirit just give me a kiss on the cheek and just say, well done, well done. You see, that's worship. Worship is the Lord leaning into you, 
and you leaning away from everything else that promises to satisfy you, everything else that says, this is your rights, this is the way you live, this is what you do, this is how you think about people who are sinners, you lean away from all that garbage, and you lean into him, and you kiss him, and you hear his heart, and you begin to love and be part of the things that he is actually, that he's actually doing. John said, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us first and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Worship is leaning into the one who leaned into us. And we do that in spirit and in truth. But the truth is that we will never lean in toward God until we are first of all honest about the other gods that we love and we serve and we turn away from them. If you've been reading through your Bible, uh, with our Bible app this past week, you've been reading through Jeremiah in the early chapters. He deals a lot, the Lord does, with the idolatry of the people and basically saying, why do you come and worship me? You got all these idols. It means nothing to me. And friends, true worship is us being really truthful. Worship the Lord in spirit and truth is being honest with the things that we love and serve that are not anything to do with God. And we say, Lord, I'm sick and tired of that. I acknowledge that it's wrong. I lean away, I turn away, and I say to every idol, every demon, everything out there that wants to entice me, I'm off the market. I belong to Jesus. And I lean into Him. That's worship. God said through Jeremiah, he said, my people have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me. Get this, the spring of living water, Jesus talked about. And number two, they've dug their own wells, which are broken wells that cannot hold water. When we worship God, we acknowledge all the wrong ways we try to satisfy that thirst in our soul, and we find fulfillment in Christ. In verse 25, the woman said she believed the Savior would come one day. Jesus said, I am the Savior. If you want to know what God is like, you just have to look at me I am the truth about God. Here's the problem. According to Stats Canada, 70% of the Canadian population believes in God. I think in the States it's even bigger than that. It's like 96%, some crazy number. That doesn't impress me. And the reason it doesn't impress me is because the God that our culture believes in is basically a God that tolerates anything and doesn't interfere with what you want to do. But when it comes to Jesus, you can't play that game. Jesus is God himself in the flesh who laid his life down for you that your sins might be forgiven, that you might have a relationship with God and be free to live. We talked about holiness this morning. The holiness of God that he offers to us is a wholeness of life, a fullness of life that he wants to bring into our lives that we can walk with God and that that wholeness overflows to others around us. The Lord wants to work that in our lives, so he died for that to happen in us, which means that he requires of us nothing less than our complete devotion. Friends, if you're truly going to follow Jesus Christ, he's going to mess with your life. He's really going to mess with your life because he loves you too much to let you just live as you please. And that's why, again, we live in a country where 70% say they believe in God, You can talk about God, you can even pray sometimes in some venues, as long as what? As long as you don't say the name of Jesus. Because everybody today believes in everything and everybody believes in nothing today, but when you get to a God that you can know and has a claim on your life, everything changes. Jesus says, I am the Savior, I am the only one, and the woman knows that she has a decision to make, and she makes a decision. She says, I don't care if you're Jewish or Samaritan, you're the Messiah, I've got to respond. And she does that. She drops her bucket, basically. She runs back into her village. She tells everybody about this living water because just as Jesus promised, this water began to bubble up within her 
and now she has to tell somebody else. Friends, it doesn't matter how long we've gone to church. It doesn't matter what we profess to believe. I really believe with all my heart you can tell when somebody truly knows the Lord. And the way you can tell that is they want to tell other people about him. Bottom line, when you're in love with somebody, you can't stop talking about them. You look for opportunities at least. You initiate conversations. You grandparents here, <coughs> excuse me, especially you ladies, if you're a grandmother, I can almost guarantee if I walked down and took your purse, I would find a wallet full of pictures of your grandkids. No, not your kids, but your grandkids. Your grandkids have replaced your kids. We know how that works. Let me just tell you real quick here some ways I think in this story we model how we communicate Jesus with other people. Number one, I'll give them to you quick. We've got to make contact with people. Jesus went out of his way to speak to somebody that nobody else wanted to speak to. John writes that Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way. And you know what? For some of us here this morning, that's not a big problem. We live and work among people all the time that don't know the Lord. And that's wonderful if you have those opportunities. In fact, if you're in a job that you're surrounded by people who don't know Christ, whatever you do, don't pray that God give you a different job. You're where he wants you to be. That's why I don't pray for another job. But friends, some of us here this morning, maybe we'll talk more about it next week, but some of us here this morning have to be more intentional to actually go to our way to connect with people like Jesus did. I've got a neighbor who lives right behind me, moved in a short while ago. I know I've got to go across there and, and, and invite them over for a barbecue and start building relationships. I've got to be intentional. Secondly, we see that Jesus aroused interest. First of all, Jesus broke the right rules. He didn't let religious rules keep him away from the kinds of people that, that, he, that he needed to associate with. See, that's what the rules do. They're not only man-made, but they're actually rules that keep you away from people that need God. That's where you can tell they're bad rules. I think it's a pretty good indication. Jesus didn't just walk up to the woman and say, hey, you've got to get saved. What did he do? You read the story, he began by simply talking about water. And friends, if you'll take time to simply get to know what's going on in a person's life, I guarantee you'll have some conversations. I guarantee over time, it may not be that day, it may be months down the road, but along with prayer, I guarantee you'll have an opportunity to talk to them about the person that you know. Number three, Jesus clarified. This woman was confused about God. Didn't, uh, didn't know how to know him. Didn't know he was a place, a person, religion, relationship. Had no idea. And again, friends, most people today that you know, when they think of church, they just think of it as a place that you go and you listen to some dead, dry, long sermon. Okay? And I can tell you my sermons are not dead and dry. Just long. You didn't catch that. I just threw that out to you and you still didn't catch it. I can tell you're visiting. But we need to clarify what it means to know Jesus. And I'm going to go back to this for just a second, friends. We're going to have thousands of people downtown this week who are going to be celebrating the whole gay agenda, the gay lifestyle, and so on. But I can tell you this. There's going to be a whole lot of people in those circles who are going to be empty. We're going to be in the middle of the festivities, but yet there's a longing in their soul that's saying, I'm more than this. There's something more to life than this. And I'm really wondering how many Christians there are this week, and I'm going to be one of them. I wonder how many Christians there are this week who rather than being upset, or actually have broken hearts and say, God, what can I do? What can I do? Is there a divine appointment that you would have for me? Uh, you know, rather than all this week avoiding downtown, rather than next Saturday at the parade, uh, this isn't in my notes, so apologize, but this is not the Lord, I think it is, but rather than next Saturday saying, you know what, all this stuff's going on downtown, I'm staying home, or if I gotta go to Riverview, I'm going the long way, I'm gonna swim across? <laughs> what would happen if the people of God if the people of God would actually get in their face before God and say, Father, what can I do? I mean, maybe there's nothing this time. Maybe there is. Is there anything you would have me do that you would have me cut right through there somehow? Would there be somebody sitting down somewhere, empty, brokenhearted, rejected, maybe in a lifestyle they don't even want? 
And somebody would come along who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus, who loves them, and doesn't bring religion, doesn't bring a church, doesn't bring a place, but it helps them to understand how they can be set free. You see, friend, if you're here this morning, you're having sex outside of marriage, you need to be set free. I don't care if you're gay or heterosexual, it doesn't matter, it's the same sin. You see, if you're living common law, if you're, if you're a gossip, if you're a slanderer, read the word of God, none of these are getting into the kingdom. Idolatry, adultery, go through the list, it is sin. The only difference in the sin is the degree of brokenness that brings into the human life, but it's still the sin. You see, Jesus didn't condemn the sin. The lady knew her need. She knew her sin. But Jesus was the answer to all of her sin. What this woman needed is she didn't need just to stop her sinning. She needed Jesus. And once you get Jesus, Jesus will help you to stop the sin. He'll forgive you of the sin. He'll break the stronghold of the sin. And not only will he set you free of your sin, he will use you to send you back in to reach other people that you can relate to to set them free too. That's the heart of Jesus. And that's the last point, just the invite. The woman not only accepted Christ, she invited her entire village. You say, why in the world would these people who rejected her all this time, why in the world would these people even listen to her? I'll tell you why they listened to her. Because they saw a woman come into the village who every other time they'd seen her, she walked with her head down. She didn't look at anybody. She avoided people. She went right to her house. She stayed indoors. She went places when she knew nobody else would be there. But all of a sudden, this woman comes running into the town. Her head is held high. She's full of joy. She's got something. She's alive. She's excited about God. And she tells them what God has done for her through Jesus. And they say, something's happened in this woman's life. She's not the same person. And they all come out to meet Jesus. They all invite Jesus back. He's there for two days. And there's a revival in the village because of what Jesus taught them. But just as many came to Jesus because they looked at this woman and say, all I know is she's not the same woman. And whatever she's got, I want that too. I just believe this is the kind of people we need to be. Musicians, would you come as we close this morning? There was a lady came to the Lord in our church a little while back. And I'll never forget the first Sunday she came. That week, I got a call from another person in the church. said, Pastor, I saw such and such person in the church. Do you know who they were? And I said, yeah, that's so-and-so. And she gave her heart to the Lord. She said, what? Yeah, she gave her heart to the Lord just a couple days ago. Oh, pastors, I would never believe that in my life. What are you talking about? She said, well, I actually worked with this woman for a number of months. Actually, for, actually I think it's probably a year or more. And she said, nobody liked this person. She said, in fact, things were so bad in the office that the manager actually retired early, five years early, to not have to work with this person. I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. She said, no, Pastor. No, no, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. So anyway, so long story short, I said, so do you notice any difference? Pastor, it's night and day. The atmosphere, the person, totally transformed. Just simple encounter with Jesus Christ, being set free. Somebody that everybody had written off, somebody that everybody avoided, nobody wanted to be around, totally changed. And you want to believe that started a buzz in that workplace of people saying, I don't go to church, but that woman's not the same. <laughs> what church did she go to? What happened to her? Those are the kind of stories I believe the church needs to be filled with again. We need stories again of people 
who were the Samaritans who were set free. We need to hear stories again, not just of people who decide to get their life straightened up and come to church. We need to hear stories from people whom the church went out, broke through the barriers, broke down the taboos, didn't care about the religious taboos, didn't care about rules that were keeping people from God. They broke those gladly because they understood one thing. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. Would you stand with me? As we close, I'm going to ask our ministry team to come. If you could just stand along the front, they know what to do. But if you're here this morning, as we dismiss the service, and you've never opened your heart to Jesus, because for whatever reason, you know your own reason, just why I don't feel worthy, I don't feel whatever, never heard the gospel before. And if you want to accept Christ this morning, I invite you to come and just stand by one of these people, and they're just going to pray with you. And they're going to show you how you can know Jesus yourself, how your sins can be forgiven. There is no sin that will keep you, that, uh, that Jesus can't forgive. We shared last week, the only thing he can't forgive is a sin you won't bring to him. That's only one. Bring it to him. He will forgive you. I want to invite you this morning to come to a person to have a relationship with God, not church, with Jesus. So I want to invite you to come. But I'm going to do something I didn't plan to do. I'm going to ask you to join with me this morning. I'm going to pray. I was planning to pray. But I want to pray as the people of God of glad tidings who don't mind breaking the right rules. I want us to lift our voice. And I want us to pray for what is taking place in our community this week. I want us to pray for the thousands of people who are going to be here, who are going to be in festivities and in the midst of it still be empty and broken. I'm going to ask that in the middle of the river of pride that there would come a river of life. That there would be believers who, if you don't go, you home and you pray, and you, you, you intercede, and you cry out to God. You may even feel led to go. Give me a call if you're going. I'll be down there at some point. I've got to pray exactly with him. I'm going to be down there. If nothing else to observe, if nothing else to let God touch my heart and break my heart and to pray, if nothing else, maybe there's a divine appointment somewhere. I'm going to ask us this morning, as the people of God here at Glad Tidings, if we are willing for the Lord to break our heart, and to see people as he sees people. And to say, Lord, not how do I stay away? How do I avoid? How do I go around them? Lord, how do I get in the very middle? How do I have those encounters? Does that make any sense this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the incredible example you give us in Jesus. We don't pretend to have all the answers. But what we do know is that except for your righteousness, we are lost. Except for your salvation, we are bound in sin and brokenness. And we thank you for your great grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead each of us this week and however you'd have us to move. But I pray, Lord, that we'd at least pray, at least be open to what you would have us do or pray or whatever it may be, somewhere in between. But Lord, I want to lift up those who are going to participate in this week. I even pray for those who are in a church service downtown today. I pray as they leave that service that they will leave with an understanding that this was empty. There was, there was no life here. There was no spirit here. There was... There's got to be more than this. I pray for many that a spiritual journey will begin if it hasn't begun already. Lord, I pray that you'd understand that you see each of us from more than what just we are on the outside. You see our heart. And we've all been created equal, O oh Lord, in your sight. We all need salvation. We all need cleansing and forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray this morning that even as believers that you would check our hearts for things where we feel we're righteous, but we are just as sinful. We tolerate sin and evil and brokenness and gossip and lying and adultery and fornication and pornography and all those things, Lord. 
our sin is just as vile in your eyes, and yet we ask for forgiveness. That we might come as people who are not more righteous, but people who are aware of your righteousness and what you've done for us. I just pray you would lead us. And I just pray, Lord, for the festivities through this week, that you would lead your people in all churches, O oh God, to be on their knees, or Father, to be in the streets, and to love and to converse, to pray. I just pray, Lord, today that you would lead us to Samaritans in our society. It may even be folks outside of those festivities. In our workplace, in our home, give us new eyes to see people as you see them. And I pray for wonderful testimonies of people coming to Christ because we took time to get our hands dirty. We took time to humble ourselves and to, to give because we freely receive. And so, Lord, I pray for this morning for anyone here who doesn't know you. I pray as we dismiss, may they just feel the freedom to come and to receive you for the very first time. Break away the religiousness. If they don't have security in you, may they be honest enough to say, I need Jesus. And may they come this morning. Dismiss as I pray with your blessing. Let your word not depart from us. Let it, Lord, pick at us, Lord, until you move us to be Jesus in the marketplace this week. We give you praise in your precious name.